wild world. Presented by. Do you know Raisin, the natural wine app? It's a guide to natural winemakers, bars, restaurants, and wine shops all around the world, guaranteed 30% natural wine. This goes hand in hand with local, seasonal, and organic food. Not to mention, these are people with a locally sourced mindset. So you're going to find the best spots to eat and drink well wherever you are in the world by downloading the app at Raisin.Digital. And Disgorgeous, the only wine podcast. Disgorgeous. And this is Evan Donovan, the owner of Demimond, and I want to thank Wild World for having us as a sponsor. You can come over and check us out at 257 Verrett Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Lots of good food, great wines, great coffee. Demimondbk.com. Good afternoon, everybody. This is the OG NY in the 2000s panel. Uh, the second of a uh, trilogy of panels discussing the origins of natural wine in, in today's culture. Uh, if you didn't get to see the first panel, it'll be on our website, uh, wildworldfestival.com, uh, with Mark Grandinon and uh, Arno Earhart. Um, so, OG and the 2000s, uh, everyone up here was part of, uh, I guess, the birth and the beginnings of this cultural revolution that's become sort of a revolution and a fashion and a kind of a moment. Uh, and we're going to discuss uh, what it was like uh, in the late 90s and in the aughts. Um, it's going to be moderated by Lou Amdur of uh, Lou Wine Shop in Los Angeles, who also had the first natural wine bar on the West Coast in um, the early aughts. We have on the end uh, Bill Fitch, who was um, brought natural wine to uh, places like the park and Vinegar Hill House and Il Buco back then, before anyone saw things like uh, Courtois on a uh, wine menu. Uh, Il Buco had them in the late 90s and early 2000s. Lee Campbell has been uh, worn many hats in, in the natural wine uh, world, uh, but she's here representing an era um, uh, as a sales rep, uh, representative for Vineyard Expression, who also Donald was there. Yeah. One of the first uh, books to... Uh, where we're, There was Kermit Lynch, but we just called that wine. We didn't start using the word natural wine, I think, until... Maybe Vineyard Expression when we saw Darden Rebo and uh, uh, the wines of Courtois. Um, so it's kind of an important distinction um, why we quit calling it natural wine or started calling it not just wine, but that'll be something we'll discuss. Uh, also a very important early importer, uh, Jenny Lefcourt of Jenny and Francois Selections. Next, a uh, very important uh, person that had to be here had the very first uh, natural wine restaurant and bar in the country. Uh, was a meeting place for all of us uh, back in the day. Uh, some of you were there, many of you weren't, and we'll hear about it today. This is Arno Earhart of 360 and Red Hook. And such a big reason... technique. Such a big reason this is, uh, we're all here today. Uh, he may not know it or humbly say that's not true, but the writings of uh, this person uh, introduced a lot of these wines. Uh, he took a lot of risks promoting and, and championing these, these wines we like. Um, and we're really glad to have him here. New York Times uh, wine critic, uh, wine writer, Eric Asimov. Yay. Eric. And the next panel, which is the, uh, the new OG, the, uh, that'll, that's being pushed about an hour back. None of the other discussions will be delayed. Uh, so without further ado, uh, Eric's going to introduce 
introduce this subject, and Lou's going to moderate it, and we'll go from there. Thanks to everybody. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, Many people think of natural wine as uh, something trendy, something cool, but in fact, uh, natural wine is as old as wine itself. And it really was the only kind of wine until uh, quite recently. So when you think of, of trendy wine bars in Brooklyn or cool festivals like, like this, it's really the, the, um, the reintroduction of, of wine as it originally was. Um, I first um, encountered... Uh, these wines, and I had never heard the term natural wine, when I was a restaurant reviewer for the Times, and I happened on Arnaud's restaurant, 360, which was just this um, uh, storefront in Red Hook, Brooklyn, and my job was to kind of find um, unconventional, offbeat uh, restaurants, uh, uh, immigrant restaurants, places of, of diverse cuisines and ethnicities, and uh, I, I don't remember ever actually coming out to Red Hook except to the soccer fields there, where which used to have this great array of food. But uh, I, so I came out to Arnaud's place, and of course I didn't know him at the time. It looked like a little bistro, and I'm there with my friends. And this big guy is walking around with um, glasses of wine, foisting foisting them on you. Oh, you got to try this. It's going to go really well with this food. What is it? Uh, Sauvignon. Sauvignon Blanc? No, Sauvignon. I had never heard of Sauvignon before. I didn't know any of the wines of the the Jura. I didn't know any of the names of the people that... um, uh, have now become familiar as the OG of natural wine. Uh, and I tried this wine, and it was wonderful. It was pure. It was different. It was shocking, but it was great. And, and I wanted more, and I wanted to have this experience again and again. And I eventually reviewed this restaurant, and I was trying to sum it up. This was back in um, mid-2003, And I said, in the end, what defines 360 best is its singular vibe, which combines a connoisseur's pursuit of quality with a bohemian disregard of authority. (laughs) And I think that pretty much, that definition of the best producers of natural wine still stands. It's people who are seeking the the best and have an eye on top quality, but completely disregard uh, whatever they've been told is good. They're finding out from themselves. At this time, um, there there wasn't any natural wine movement, although that's what people who were appalled by natural wines insisted on calling it. Um, The next year after I wrote this review, I started writing about wine. I gave up the reviewing duties and I thought, oh, I've got to figure out where to get these sorts of wines. And I I wrote an article in 2005 about what seemed to me this kind of alternate wine universe it had its own network of, of restaurants and, and wine bars. It had uh, people like Jenny Lefcourt. I think she was just beginning um, Jenny and Francois around that time. or Yeah, it had been around for a few years. That's where this was the, the, the alternate distribution network. Um, there were stores like Chambers Street where you could actually buy the wines retail. Um, People, uh, Lee was at Chambers Street, I think, way back then. Uh, people like Bill were, were selling them, and I don't remember when Vinegar Hill House opened. It wasn't quite in 2005. Before that, okay. Wow. All right. So 
there was this network, and you really had to, to know people, to know where to go, to know what you were drinking. And, and slowly it, it kind of grew, and at least the secret network grew and expanded in more restaurants. Byron Bates uh, started serving natural wines at a restaurant called Betty on uh, West 23rd Street. And um, the, the conventional mainstream wine world started to take notice, and they were just throwing shit fits. I mean, every, you know, they still are. That's correct. But it was like, who is, are these people? If their wine is natural, what is mine? Unnatural? Which always seemed like the lamest possible <laughs> argument. Um, and, and over time, I wrote a, a, a series of arguments detailing these, um, uh, the, the hornet's nest that natural wine had become. Uh, I went to Lou Amder for, for good quotes, and um, he was the guy who, uh, I, as I recall, said to me, well, natural wine, you know, if you prefer um, unpasteurized cheese, dry-aged beef, um, sourdough bread rather than wonder bread. Natural wine is part of that realm. And, and that really made sense to me because natural wine is really just a, um, uh, a food. It's a really good food. And over time, I, I started to describe our current era of wine as the greatest time in history if you love wine. And uh, the reason was because after 2010 or so, it seemed that we had this amazing diversity. There were grapes that you never heard of in styles that you never imagined, from places that you never contemplated. All of these great wines. And when you look at the reason for this wonderful diversity, it's hard not to give a lot of credit to the people who have been promoting natural wine since the, the 90s, since well before I started to get into it. And if you think about what the people who were in this uh, natural wine world brought to uh, the rest of the world, um, first of all, it was a, an insistent on, insistence on making wines that were not manipulated. It was um, a uh, a subversive attitude that disregarded the conventional mainstream wisdom of, of what was good, what was correct, um, even the idea that there existed what uh, people insisted on referring to as a nobility of grapes. And it was this, this subversive attitude that really helped to, to rediscover the, um, uh, the diversity of localities in wine. Um, if you remember uh, Mondovino and this uh, terrible fear that we were entering this homogenized world where people would be making Cabernet and Chardonnay and, and almost nothing but, even on Mars... Um, we have natural wine people to thank for saying, no, we've been making Pinot d'Anis for, for centuries here, Romorantine, uh, Norello Mascalese, all kind of grapes all over the world that, um, that people didn't know about, that were serving the, the local populations for, for centuries have been um, discovered by the world at large. And I think a, a lot of that is due to the um, natural wine. And I still don't want to call it um, a movement. So uh, that was my introduction and embrace of, of natural wine. And I'll uh, hand it over to Lou. So, so, I have some questions. Um, the first question I have is to start to kind of clarify some things in my mind, I think for a lot of us, our minds, 
and I'm going to ask Jenny this question. Uh, um, when you were introduced to these wines, were they presented, Robineau, say, this is a Van Naturel, or did he just say, here's some delicious Chenin, and put it in your mouth? Hi. Can everyone hear me okay? Um, I was living in Paris in the late 90s, early 2000s. Oops. Um, came back, and I actually had dinner with you that night at 360. <laughs> At the same table. At the same table. Well. <laughs> um, but um, we were living in France, and um, you know, one of my first experiences with natural wine was I was waiting for a bus in front of a wine bar, and it was uh, Jean-Pierre Robineau, who is now a winemaker. Um, he saw me looking at a poster, and I went in. He said, you have to try this, and he poured me a very cloudy Chenin Blanc. And I tasted it, and I had tried some wines like this in Paris, but I hadn't ever liked big, you know, big hefty wines. And I was beginning to say, what is this? If this is wine, I love wine. And nobody was calling it natural wine. Nobody called it natural wine. The term barely existed at the time. But there were some little salon wine fairs even before the Dive Boutet, and one of them I went to that week after this experience, tasting this cloudy wine. I went to the suburbs of Paris. It was some agent who was um, running it. And Hervé Suo was there, a bunch of other producers. He's the one I really remember. Um, But I went around this very small room, and everyone and asked how they made their wines. And I didn't know much about wine, but everyone said the same thing, which was that they were growing grapes organically, and they were making wine with indigenous yeast and not too much sulfur and no additives. But none of them really knew each other. Nobody really talked to each other. It was a very disparate kind of... Everyone was alone in their appellation, the crazy one. So, like, the crazy one in Anjou, the crazy one in, you know, Saint-Joseph, the crazy one in this town, because nobody was doing anything like them. And so it was really at these moments, these wine fairs, or even like us as importers traveling along and bringing information, I think, um, you know, the Japanese importers, the different ways of stirring up knowledge that connected points together, and people started to exchange information. And I think, um, but yeah, no, (laughs) to answer the question, there wasn't sort of the word natural wine really at the time. So, Bill or Lee, when is the first you remember using that phrase, natural wine, to describe these wines? For me, as much as possible, because I don't have much of a voice. Sorry, you guys. Um, It was actually with Peyra. So, it would have been around 2002, when I was working at Chamber Street. And... um, I didn't quite know what I was getting into with Chamber Street. I just knew that I needed a job. I had been working in restaurants in wine a little bit. My friend Noel Schur, who had been working at Vineyard Expressions, um, said, oh, we, we opened this wine store not too long ago. You should come by and meet, the, meet Jamie and David. I had worked with Noel at Vineyard Expressions, which was a small upstart dis- distributor, and... I do want to sort of just build on the idea that we had a lot of very interesting wines from lesser-known appellations all over Europe, all over Western Europe. And we had two wacky wines that I didn't ever really know how to sell. But when I did sell them, they would end up in the most bizarre places. So the idea that you would drag out Darden Rebo and you never knew what it was going to taste like the day you took it out. And you would go to Midtown Sommelier's and every now and then, somebody would bite. I remember um, Beth von Benz used to bite Darden Rebo from me at uh, Judson Grill, you know, in the mid-90s. But I only lasted a few months at Vineyard Expressions because I didn't know how to sell wine. 
and I certainly didn't know how to sell Courtois, Darden Repo, or even really, it was like we had weird Austrian wines and Northern Italian wines and things that people had never heard of. So this idea that there were, there were no natural wine books at that point. There were people who just, there was just Mark Whitmore of Vineyard Expressions who had two wines. So a couple years later, uh, I ended up at Chamber Street because Noel said, come by. I went and I met the guys. They were great. They were in the old firehouse in the first location. And still, we weren't really talking about it in that way. But what we were talking about at that point that I think is really important to bring up, it was about style. So at that point, the fight amongst wine people in the late 90s in New York City was about big, bombastic, extracted, new wood fermented, Napa Cab, Michel Roland wines versus classical, subdued food wines. That was the conversation that was going on. Natural wine expanded from that conversation of style, that we were looking for things that really expressed terroir, that had minerality, that had acidity, that had freshness, and went with food. Um, but the first time somehow I remember thinking about natural wine as something larger, it was when I was tasting some Domaine de Peyra which um, Jenny was bringing in at the time, which is a defunct estate um, from the Auvergne. Um, other people picked up the baton from that project, like uh, Maupertui. He was one of the original partners in Domaine de Peyra. But that was the first time I tasted it, and I was just like, this is crazy. Like, this is crazy. And the other thing I want to point out, and then I'm going to pass it to you, is that at that point in my career and I had spent time as a floor manager and as a maitre d', and I was starting to get interested in wine, but really just as like sort of an aside, I was working in restaurants in the late 90s, like Gotham Bar and Grill and Union Pacific. These were the, the really nice restaurants of the era, but again, nobody talked about wine in that way. Um, but somehow I stumbled into ha essentially having two mentors. I worked at Chamber Street, and I met Joe Dresner, but at the time, I had actually had some, a foundational relationship with Terry Thies. So I think it's really funny that, at that in that era, like Joe Dresner, Terry Thies, they were sort of like, oh, they're white dudes who bring in wine. They both seem nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I will spare you all the nasty details, but Joe was the one that triumphed. Okay. In, in sort of my mind. Um, I, I have memories of when Donald used to bring the Vineyard Expressions wine into Il Buco that, that, that someone, I'm not sure it was you, said that they were, it was Van Nature. They didn't say natural wine, they just called it Nature, like, you know, yogurt or whatever. Um, but that's kind of, that, that was probably in like, I don't know, 99? Yeah. Um, so that's, the, that's so when, when, when they were, people were saying natural wine, it seemed like it was the same to me, but I, I don't, maybe it wasn't. Maybe the sort of self-consciously, you know, the self-conscious natural wine uh, quasi-movement, uh, it seems like it did, it was around 2003 or so, and maybe it was the pair. Those are the wines that I remember also. When you brought those in, I was just like, I mean, they were amazing. And even though, even though I worked at this very clubby, you know, not fine dining, but huge volume uh, place. Uh, I could they, those they move people even even people have almost no wine uh, savvy or whatever loved those wines, and I, I sort of agree with you. Like, I feel like at the time wine itself wasn't was a was sort of a new thing. Um, even you know in New York, it was more so than in other parts of the, of the country, but. Just, just to have somebody go to your table. You know, there weren't psalms. There were, there were very few sommeliers. So just, just, just having a conversation in a restaurant with someone who worked there about wine was kind of a rare thing. So I, I agree. I, I remember that as a, you know, that's what I sort of felt Kermit Lynch and Rosenthal were, this kind of a less um, Parker, less, you know, uh, more refined, more, more drinkable um, style. And these were sort of part of that style, I guess. Yeah, yeah just to share what Domaine de Perha was, yeah. it was a gamay 
from an obscure region called the Auvergne. Now there's a lot of uh, natural winemakers in that area in France. But obscure Gamay from the Loire, like these light reds with lots of acidity, bringing these to New York, people were afraid of acidity, mostly. <laughs> they were like, what is this? What is this? But then we would we'd learn and put it sort of at the end of our lineup so people's palates were kind of ready for it. <laughs> and then people would taste like traditional buyers. And at the time, this is like the early 2000s, all the buyers were men, all the winemakers were men, there weren't any women except for Lee around. Um, and people would taste this uh, gamay, like these very, very experienced buyers, and say, oh my goodness, like this is why I love wine. And it wasn't about natural wine, but something was speaking to people as just good wine, original wine, wine that was different, and it was exciting. So that was kind of the reaction from, like, you know, very traditional buyers. And you could drink a lot of it, (laughs) which is very important. We were younger back then, so... I'm I'm still doing it. I'm, I'm still doing it. It takes me four days to recover now, but I'm still doing it. So, Arnaud, uh, talk a little bit about that early history or prehistory of Red Hook, and how did you get turned on to these wines? Well, actually, uh, I, I had met, uh, I used to, what brought me to New York was a very uh, classic, uh, I started working at La Guru in uh, in the mid-90s, and uh, it was a very, very classic. Lots of, lots of big Burgundies, lots of big Bordeaux, but some Jura wines and some Thévenet wines, some Lapierre wines. Uh, we couldn't sell the, uh, the Jura wines to save our lives, so Francois would get mad at me, and he said, we're not selling this, and he says, I want you to double the price, and that will move the wines, and we would double the price, and we would sell them in about a week. Because at the time, you know, Pinot Noir from Pufnay was uh, at La Goury, which had some very expensive real estate, was 30 bucks, I think. Um, but um, that's... Uh, then I, you know, I went down to, uh, to open Balthazar with, uh, with Nasseter and Laurent Sayard was now making wines and Jorge and Chris Johnson and a bunch of these guys. Um, but in 2001, I was actually working, uh, I had worked for Jean-Georges Van Gersten, and I helped uh, open a restaurant uh, called Viro, where the uh, vineyard expression, that, that famous trip, uh, that's a different conversation, but the first, uh, the first time that Courtois came over with a bunch of winemaker for the vineyard expression tasting, I think uh, they almost all got arrested on, at the arrival at JFK because Claude... It actually started, op- you could still open, you could still travel with bottles at the time. And they started drinking on the plane. And then Claude was walk- walking around pouring glasses for everyone while the people at Air France were trying to, uh, to slow this whole madness down. Um, Viro was, a, was an unfortunate uh, victim of, uh, of 9-11. We, uh, the financing was, uh, was Wall Street at the time, and we were getting bomb scared every, uh, every other hour. We were close to... Uh, Arnaud, to where was it again? Where? Viro was uh, a half a block from uh, Grand Central Station. Uh, so we were getting evacuated uh, every other hour. In uh, September, late September 2001, they pulled the plug, which meant that my visa, I was on a visa at the time, uh, that I basically had 10 days to pack up and leave. And uh, I, was, I was already living in Red Hook at the time, and uh, one of my very good friends in Red Hook had a construction company, and he had just lost a couple of his trucks and some of his big jobs. And uh, we sat down, had a few bottles of wine, and, uh, and he said, look, you always wanted to open a place in Brooklyn. He's like, I have a space that's available. I can build it, and, uh, and we should go ahead. And I, said, I looked at him, and I said, do you have any money? And he said, no. He says, do you? And I said, no. I said, but I have lots of credit card. My, my credit was immaculate at the, at the time. Uh, no one works for a New York State Taxation Department in a year? No, okay. Um, and, and that's how it all got started. And it's a, it's a labor of love because I had a bunch of uh, friends and neighbors. Red Hook at the time had a bunch of crazy people, uh, welders, woodworkers, and uh, 
everybody kind of came together and said, we need to make this happen, and this needs to happen, and the money's not really relevant. Let's just get up. The, the idea was to have a place where we could hang out, and that's how it all got started. And, and, uh, we, uh, and then there's this... Uh, so I already, knew, uh, I already knew Joe from buying wines for, for La Guru. Uh, I knew Kermit a little bit. Uh, I was doing a little bit of business with Neil. And then there's this uh, completely crazy encounter of, uh, of Francois and Jenny where these guys said, uh, we heard about you when uh, they had two suitcases full of wine. And I said, well, you know, we're, we're in the middle of construction and I don't really have a bunch of time, but, but let's, take a few bottle, let's taste a few bottles. Uh, at the time, I was really, uh, I, I didn't like salespeople that just showed up at my door. Um, and I think uh, it turned into like a half a day and an entire night of absolute mayhem. Francois and I almost got uh, arrested that night uh, on, on Coffee Street because uh, we were drinking and, uh, and relieving ourselves out on the street in Red Hook. And we had all these bottles of wine, and the, the NYPD came by and said, what the fuck are you doing? And it's like, uh, and that was really the, uh, the beginning of it. And, and, uh, and the decision... And then, uh, the and then decision, we moved into your house, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and actually, uh, 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 the, uh, the first official, I believe, the first official address for uh, Jenny and Francois selection was at 192 Coffee Street, which was my, my house. All our samples were in his basement. All the, all the samples actually <laughs> we went crashed to there. <laughs> Had our so first tastings. Uh, and, and, that's, and, and the idea for, for 360 was, was uh, I did not want to promote anyone that I didn't know whose vineyard I hadn't seen. They're the first trip, trip to France where I, you know, Jorge's not here today, but uh, where I took uh, these guys. Some credit we don't hear enough about, but uh, Chris Johnson and Chris Andrews had a a restaurant called Bao 111 on the Lower East Side. Um, Laurent Sayard was now making wine in, uh, in the Loire Cher, who also had a restaurant he opened a year after me, a restaurant called EC, and that's a very tight-knit group to this day. Uh, we all worked together uh, back in the, in the mid to late 90s, and, uh, and we're still, it's still very much a very, very tight group. And, uh, you know, we try to... Uh, I'm still, uh, I'm still 22 years old in my head. My niece says differently, but... Uh, so try traveling in 2003 to visit a bunch of Loire Valley winemakers with, like, seven men <laughs> and crazy drinking. It was... It was something. It, it was a lot of dudes. <laughs> that was a I, lot I, of I was dudes. glad that, that Lee mentioned Joe Dresner, who was um, very influential, who passed away in 2010, who, um, among... Uh, his many other gifts, he knocked wine off its pedestal, which I think was very important because American culture, you know, has turned it into this kind of um, academic exercise where you have to uh, you have to become a connoisseur before you can actually like wine. Um, the other pe- person who we haven't mentioned is Alice Firing, who before I. There she is. Raise your hand, Alice. Before I ever started writing about wine, um, she published a piece in the New York Times that uh, delineated all the additives that were actually legal to put into wine, all the manipulations that were were commonly used to to make mass production wine. And I think that was a real eye-opener for a lot of people. And she's uh, carried the torch... Uh, vigorously, strongly, and and courageously for the last 20 years. Um, the other guy we haven't mentioned is Jorge Riera, who, with uh, Laurent and Arnaud, worked at 360, and I first met him there. And he's been, uh, from one restaurant to another, been um, pushing wonderful natural wines and finally last year opened um, Frenchette on Tribeca and if you think of this trajectory of, of natural wine from you know a storefront in three in in Red Hook or this sort of um, marginal neighborhood neighborhoods of New York City to this big restaurant in Tribeca, well-financed with two superstar chefs and an all-natural wine list. I mean, that's pretty amazing. 
I, if I could pick up a little bit on what you were saying about knocking wine off of its pedestal. I think that in itself is why I even got into wine. I mean, I, of course, was interested in the agricultural aspect of it, and I had grown up in the Hudson Valley around a lot of fruit orchards and a lot of farmers, but, and my grandfather was also a farmer in Jamaica. But, um, you know, and, and, and to be fair, my first job in the business was for a woman named Nora Pouillon, who was an Austrian chef in Washington, D.C., which is where I met Alice Firing, who is probably the first person in the natural wine industry I ever knew. Um, and that was an organic restaurant in Washington, D.C. But in terms of how I got into wine and why I felt embraced by wine, it had everything to do with, with bringing down the barriers and knocking down the pedestals. I mean, when I worked for Vineyard Expression uh, for Mark Whitmore, the idea was, again, it wasn't really about natural wine. It was about selling Morange instead of selling, you know, Shambu Moussini. You know, it was more about that idea. How can we get everybody to drink Burgundy instead of just this small, you know, venerated group that has lots of money. It was about getting it into people's hands. And with these more rustic representations of these regions, you know, these wines just tasted very, very alive. But I will definitely say that I think that as a woman of color, I don't know that I would have... I know I wouldn't have become a sommelier if I had stayed on a more traditional trajectory because they, they turned me off. You know, some of you guys know that I dated this kind of snooty sommelier back in the late 90s, early aughts. He's from Maryland, but he speaks like he's, he's got that Tina Turner accent. You can't place it. And, you know, he had a fancy name. Um, and that was, the, that was the vibe back then, that even if you were American, you had to act like you were European. And the thing that was great about natural wine is we were just this weird, fucked up, motley crew of people whose parents were horrified about what we had chosen to do with our college degrees, or in your case, many degrees. And somehow it just embraced us all. And because of that, we embraced each other. And when we went to Europe on those early wine trips, these people just brought us into their homes like nothing I had ever seen. I mean, just open their doors, whatever you need. They didn't even have to know anything about you. They just knew that somehow you shared this very special ethos. And if you really wanted to talk about the wine, you could. But more often, they just wanted to cook and hang out and share their lives with you. I mean, and that um, irreverence and camaraderie also really comes from you know, these are organic farmers. They're really different from everyone around them, often like the only one farming organically in a village for 20 years or whatever, coming in from Paris and starting a winery that was organically farmed to start. And that, I mean, I never, ever would have gone into wine if it wasn't about something political that's important to me, which is, like, these people are not polluting the earth, like, Wineries are the biggest polluters in France. They're the biggest polluters in every wine region. It's, you know, so um, for me at the time, I thought, how can I, like, go into business? I come from, like, a politically lefty family. My mom was um, a lawyer defending the Black Panthers. And so I thought, how can I go into business? Like, I'm not interested in business, but I am interested in what these people are doing, what they represent, the fact that they, you know, want to have us in and stay at their house. And, like, they're my family, you know, all over the world. It's a family without borders of people who um, are like-minded in the way they treat the planet. So that's, you know, that's the base of everything, too. You know, this is a, it's a very New York-centric discussion, but, Lou, you were selling wine in, in L.A., natural wine in... in the midst of, of wine spectator territory there. What was that like? Sucked. <laughs> um, and, you know, when you open a business, there's always the possibility or probability that you are deluded and you think you may have a value proposition to offer, but... And hearing what Jenny was saying, I'm going to ask a question in a second about what to me sounds insane. But uh, um, no one except people who may have traveled 
to overseas or may be New York-based would ever ask about natural wine until about 2007. And I remember in 2006 um, emailing Jenny, who I hadn't met yet, and asking, could I get some of your wine here? I need it. And she said no. Uh, and then, because she didn't have distribution, and then she said, well, maybe. And, and it wasn't from a, um, uh, a pinched, you know, keeping it to myself, but it's just there's no distribution, so it's kind of a pain in the ass. Uh, so eventually we put together an order of like 20 or 50 cases of wine, and that made it worthwhile for her. And that's how it started for me. So it's thanks to Jenny and some other folks, uh, Denise and Joe and, uh, and some other folks that... Uh, I'm here to talk to you today, but um, there, w- there was no dedicated natural wine importer who was focusing on that, that I could just say, hey, could I, could I taste some wine? And so you really had to um, uh, be focused and study and learn and travel uh, and be, feel very isolated. I remember organizing a natural wine week in New York, in, in L.A. in 2006 or seven, and it was like pulling teeth. And everyone was really suspicious, and, uh, and you, when you get out of your silo and try to talk to somebody else in the trade, there's always some suspicion, like, I'm not trying to horn in on your territory. I'm trying to do something collegial and make people, maybe help people get con- become conscious of these wines. And... Um, uh, that it was it was it wasn't impossible, but it was today. If we tried to do the same, uh, it would be yeah, here we are. Yeah, so uh, so it, it was a very different situation than uh, in New York. Um, we didn't have an Arno, we didn't have a Jenny, we didn't have a Lee uh, to make this insane decision to start businesses or to work for businesses that were working with this yet not entirely named and reified object called natural wine. Um, so, Jenny, I just want to ask you one question. So, you physically brought over in suitcases wine. You schlepped wine in suitcases just for samples, but also to sell? Not to sell, but yeah, at the time, you could bring wine in the airplane, <laughs> like inside the cabin. So, we had no financing, no money, so we would like put wine in our bag and drag it to New York, show it to retailers. The retailers would be like, send us five cases. I'd be like, okay, in a month, but could you order a little more too? <laughs> and um, that's, that's really how we started. So one day, um, I was, we were tasting wine at a kind of upscale restaurant um, called Patroon with this guy, Thierry Bruno, who's moved back to Paris and has a great restaurant. And he said, hey, I know what you should do. You should go see this guy, Arno. You guys will get along great and show him wine. But at the time, there was, you know, then there was Byron at Betty and Bill and, you know, but there, were, there wasn't an audience. There were no natural wine places um, before this. I mean... You know, there was some Marcel up here around town, or a little Court, Claude Courtois. Um, but we certainly, we certainly didn't advertise the fact that they, that they were anything. Uh, you nobody know, called it. Nobody had a no. name. Nobody. So we were searching for an audience. You know, and, and here so, you are. <laughs> so here's a situation where you could have been entirely deluded. It's it's an insane thing to start a business without any any notion there's an audience for it. And we were deluded for yeah. 10 years <laughs> until, um, yeah, we, we kept at it. I mean, really, those were the years I really, you know, 03, 04, I thought we were going to go out of business. We just didn't know. We lost a bunch of our producers to bigger, produ- you know, bigger importers who were, you know, better, <laughs> better established than us. Um, and we kept fighting and fighting and fighting, and, and here we are, you know, in every state and having a huge audience and natural wine fairs run by wonderful people, and it's super exciting to see uh, the enthusiasm today after uh, 20 years. But I know it was possible for you to, in, at that time in New York, to open a little restaurant. Oh, it was absolutely crazy, man. It, I mean, actually, you, you touched on that on your review of 360 where you said that 
no one in his right mind, no banker, I'm paraphrasing, would have approved any, any of this. Uh, but I didn't have to go through, uh, I would have never gotten financing, but my credit at the time was immaculate, having worked in big established New York restaurant. Um, and that's why I had connection to that world, like, like, like a lot of it. Like, and actually, I just had a flashback, like an actual flashback. Le Père Pinard, Fifi. What yeah. year was that? That's... Okay, that was a little later. So We uh, dragged our back to Fifi's. No, no, we... we uh, it was absolutely... Uh, it was doomed from the beginning. There, there was, uh, you know, the, the menu was 20 bucks when we opened. It was a three-course prefix menu. Uh, um, a, a lot of people told me prefix will never work in New York. Prefix doesn't work. And the list was called esoteric. Um... And it just, it just, you know, it was just a place uh, for me and friends to hang out. And we discovered that uh, there was a lot more interest uh, in it than just the friends. Uh, we, we, we touched on the, this whole thing would have never happened without the growers, you know, uh, the, the Thierry Puzla, the Marcel Lapierre. Uh, Marcel actually brought, uh, for reasons that we're not going to talk about here, I, I refuse to have... Uh, Kermit was bringing these wines, but the wines were distributed in New York through Winebow. And I refused to have uh, an account with Winebow. And the guys at Winebow, Phil actually at the time, uh, kept coming and said, well, how are you going to open this restaurant and not sell Marcel Lapierre wine? And I said, well, that's none of your business. And we actually, it never made the list, but we always had Marcel wine in the cellar because, has there been anyone from LDM here? No? Um, Marcel used to drop off wines at Thierry Puzla. They used to go in Puzla boxes and they used to be put in pallets with, with Puzla wines. And so we had, uh, we had our own little allocation of of Marcel Lapierre wine. Same thing uh, for other guys in, uh, in Beaujolais because they, they, we, we touched on that earlier. But uh, these guys were doing great work. So we're, so we're the Dresner. Um, actually, the, the rumor on the street was that, of course, Joe... Dresner wasn't allowed to be a partner in a restaurant legally because of his import license. But the rumor on the street was that 360 really was an LDM restaurant. And, and I, I must have been responsible partially for spreading that rumor. And Joe did spend a, a lot of time. And, they, you know, they lived on the Upper East Side. And he used to come in with his parents, actually. And it would take him about an hour and a half to get back into the city. Because you couldn't, you, couldn't you couldn't get a yellow cab. Even getting a car service was complicated. And, uh, and Marcel once came, uh, and I said, Marcel, you're not, there's no way you're going to get a yellow cab from JFK to come to the restaurant. And let me just send you a black car. He's like, no, 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 just give me the address and, uh, and, and I'll manage. And, and we were sitting with Rene and Agnès Moss having dinner, and this yellow cab pulls up. And at the time, it was very, very rare to see a yellow cab. And here comes that Marcel Lapierre with two suitcases full of wine. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was Marcel in a, in a nutshell. Um, so this would have never happened. It, it was the perfect storm of, of growers, uh, renegade importers, restaurant, bars, this whole network, which is still, which is still here today and has grown exponentially, of, uh, of people that all knew each other and, and, and decided against any kind of traditional financing or ideas of making money, it, it just happened because it needed to happen. Uh, and, and, and certainly, as, as Jenny said, there was certainly, at, at least for, for me as well, uh, the, the political aspect of it uh, was very important. Like, we, we were punks. Yeah. We were punks, <laughs> and it was really, really important of, of that part. And, and that's why Red Hook was the perfect place for it, because we had a complete disrespect of authority uh, you know, we used to have wild parties in, in Red Hook, close the block. NYPD didn't care. Uh, no one really cared, you know. And, and it was really a, it was a pirate neighborhood. My neighbor was drinking, was making beer. Uh, some other guy was uh, distilling with a pressure cooker. Uh, you know, I opened the restaurant. The, the, uh, the, um, we, decided, we, we really we were running out of money. And uh, the gas was connected, but I, but I didn't have my liquor license. And I said, fuck it, let's open this. We need to make some money. So we didn't publish the phone number, and it was re that's where that reservation-only policy came from. And so it was supposed to only be friends of friends and family, and then it became friends of friends. And one of the friends of a friend was, uh, at the time, the uh, 
food writer for uh, the New York Daily News, which was the first review at 360. And she published this great review talking about the wine list. And um, I was using Keith McNally's liquor lawyer at the time, who was this prominent guy on Broadway, who called me and said, you crazy motherfucker. He's like, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, take all the wines away from that restaurant. Your, your paperwork is, is in with the, with the SLA, and we're never going to get a license. Because I already was sitting on all this wine and direct import and stuff that we brought in. And so Scott Fathman, who owned the building, whose house was directly behind 360, we moved all the wine to his basement. And uh, so people came into the restaurant. It was BYOB, but it wasn't like bring your own wine. It was like buy my own wine from Scott, who's in the back. And we, was, we would move bottles from Scott's basement to the front of the dining room and say, hi, welcome. <laughs> and that went on for, uh, for a couple of weeks until we finally got our or liquor license. But, you know, as he, as he talks about that, then I start to muse about, I mean, it's a, similar, it's a similar sort of quandary with music. What happens when the punk becomes the mainstream, you know? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a whole other conversation, I think. Uh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know anymore. I wouldn't know. The, the thing that strikes me is that the context of New York in the early aughts, it, it's, it's hard to imagine that era if you looked around us today and a, a space like this was inconceivable then, uh, a space like Arnaud's in Red Hook, I knew Red Hook well, I had family there and I traveling there in the 80s, you, were, you did not take a cab there, you took the F train and you, sh you walked across the BQE if you were lucky and nothing happened to you. Uh, but the thought that there was uh, a natural, a place to drink natural wine there is, seemed crazy at the time. Um, and I'd already left for L.A. at, at that point, but uh, I, I was aware of it. Um, but uh, it seems impossible to imagine this happening in any other city at any other moment. So it was not just through serendipity, through accident, that you have this constellation of people uh, who were able... Uh, on a shoestring to start small businesses and to support each other. And uh, I, it, New York today is an utterly transformed environment, uh, but the thought of opening a tiny little restaurant on a shoestring it is inconceivable. The thought of opening a small import company on, a, on minimal capital uh, seems inconceivable to me. So I, I, it's just to put things into perspective, I think it's really important to recognize that it's something that happened at a, in a certain place at a certain time could not happen before that and probably could not happen after it again. Um, that's my really sad story. Uh, um, Eric, uh, perhaps you might talk a little bit about um, drinkers. And, you know, we talk, we've been talking about uh, vignerons and restaurateurs and importers, but the other half of the equation are the people who are drinking the wine. And did you get some pushback from people who, would, who you knew who were saying, why are you promoting these, this, these dreadful wines? Or, or how do I get more of these dreadful wines in my, in my life? Uh, I'm still getting pushback. Um, I wrote a piece about uh, Frenchette last year when it opened because it just seemed to me, you know, or just th this... Um, interesting that natural wine had arrived in a place that in other ways seemed very mainstream and um, I was kind of shocked at how um, controversial the, the wine list uh, seemed and uh, it, it's been this way over the years. I remember when uh, Lee opened um, now I'm blanking on the name of Renard in uh, Williamsburg, and she had an, uh, an all-natural wine list there, and, and the restaurant critic for the New York Post freaked out because he couldn't get his Bordeaux. He went apoplectic. There. Apoplectic is the word. Apoplectic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you've seen this um, uh, again and again, um, when, when you have a restaurant that doesn't offer 
the prisoner or whatever it is that people want, only natural wine, uh, people get very upset. And this has always seemed absurd to me because you can go to literally thousands of restaurants and find those sorts of wines. Why do, do, does this handful of other restaurants that are choosing to focus on natural wine have to give, ha, have to split their list then? Just go somewhere else. But, um, it, you know, if I may interrupt for a second, yes. at, at Frenchette, we had the, uh, the, the to be new CEO of Goldman Sachs came in and, and uh, he, he's. By the, the way, he, he, was, he helped to open Frenchette. And so, yeah, that was the, the second coming, and I don't know how that happened, but. Uh, um, and, and he came in and, and he didn't call in or anything, but he, he showed up. He's a big Burgundy collector. And, uh, I, and, and I, used to wait, I used to wait on him in the Hamptons and, when uh, I worked at Nick and Tony's. And of course, it came up, and I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry, but uh, we, we don't do corkage at, at Frenchette. You know, there was a, there's a Jorge Riera curated this list, and, uh, and he's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, what I mean is that you're, you're going to have to you know, keep these bottles and bring them back to your driver because you're not going to be able to open them here. And, uh, and he said, but, but it, that's not, I do this all the time. And then I was like, maybe you do, but not here. I said, you see this big guy over there? And I was pointing to Jorge and I was like, uh, he curated this list and uh, no use going to talk to him. I'm just telling you, this is, this is how it is. And, and, you know, but we can help you. We, I'm sure we can find something. And, and, and the whole conversation that ensued uh, was, was actually very interesting. And I think he had a good evening. And he ended up uh, drinking a couple of bottles of wine. And uh, eventually, you know, it seemed like he enjoyed them enough to drink them. He survived not drinking he's, he's, DRC he's, he's, for one night? He's, he sure did. He sure did. And, and that was, uh, you know, this... Uh, uh, it, it was very, uh, very funny. I mean, we touched on this on, in this conversation a couple of, couple of days ago where uh, I, I think it is important as a person that's selling wine in a restaurant to listen to the, to the guy that's in front of you and, and trying to figure out what it is that they drink and do your job. And there should be something on the list that you can find that's going to that's gonna please them. So. You know... Um just looking at, at drinkers, Lee brought up the issue of mu- what happens when punk becomes mainstream, and um, I don't, I don't think that can happen with natural wine. It just, it doesn't have the um, infrastructure, and it's, and it has. There are efforts to co-opt it, but they all seem doomed to failure because they, they subject these wines to kind of mainstream um, labeling. They try to define it. And, um, you know, know, that's always a a question. What's the definition of natural wine? And I always think the the lack of definition is one of its strongest points and and permits it to to, uh, sort of fend off these efforts to to mainstream it. Well, and the other thing I'd like to build on from that is that... um, one of the things that we did a lot during these years is we fought and we argued. And I think it's really important to keep that spirit alive. You know, my, when I was working at um, Chamber Street in 2002, the, my three co-workers on the floor were Noel Scher, Mickey Vale, and Lyle Fass. And all we did was argue all the time about these wines. So there was even at that point not a lot of agreement about what was good within these natural wines and within these wines that were burgeoning. And the only thing I want to, I get a little nervous about today is if punk is going to stay punk, we need you guys to keep questioning and to keep asking and to keep pushing back. You know, I mean, everybody knows how I feel about mouse. So that's my opinion. You can feel something differently, but let's argue. Let's not all agree. Let's, let's not all just decide that this is what natural wine is. This is what it's going to be forever. It needs to keep changing, building, evolving, and we all need to have conversations about that. Yeah, you guys, it was really, uh, I used to have an absolutely horrendous fight with Joe. I mean, horrendous. We wouldn't talk to each other for weeks at a time. Uh, you guys, too, with, with Joe, it was, it was uh, it, it very often... Uh, you know, questioning, uh, and I think Lee, uh, what Lee just said is, is very, very important. It's important that we, 
you said earlier at the beginning that, that Joe pushed, pushed these things off the pedestal, and it's very important that it stays that way. And we shouldn't make the same mistake uh, because these wines are getting popular and, and okay. oh, it should be like this or this church or that church. And that's it's what not the winemakers do. Is, I mean, that, what's special about these winemakers is that every year they question what they do and they try to do it differently and better. And that's very different from other kinds of winemakers who, who might have a formula. They are always looking to question themselves, to grow, to discuss. And that's what makes it interesting. And guys, remember also, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm you know... I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but, you know, I, I do have an issue that wines that people consider to be really vital or edgy in the natural wine movement today are maybe wines that are just being made by people that just started and that back in the day, Rene Moss made fucked up wines, you know, like in the early days, these guys were all learning their craft and, t you know, If their wines have become less edgy or more stable, it's actually because they know their terroir, they know their craft, they know their yeast, they know their cove. It's not because they've lost their edginess. I mean, Rene Moss will always be a motherfucker. So just keep that in mind, that it's not just always about they're making crazy, unfiltered, weird-looking wine because that's what the ethos is. Sometimes it's because... They're actually still sorting it out. Bill, I, I wanted to... So talking about crazy, fucked-up wine, um, I wanted to hear from somebody who was uh, deeply in the trenches pushing these wines on perhaps unsuspecting diners who did not suspect that they were going to have their brains turned around in their skulls. Uh, and... Uh, Maybe talk a little bit about um, experiences you had on the floor uh, pitching these wines to people, describing them, and maybe seducing one out of ten customers to, to take a chance. I mean, I really didn't work in an all-natural wine setting until uh, Vinegar Hill House, which was maybe five, six all-natural wine. Um, so, I, I, you know... I. It was only Il Buco where I had sort of a more sophisticated uh, diner to sell these to. And I think it's... I, I, honestly, I, it hasn't changed much for me. Like, I feel like people still react... You know, there's, there's so many different kinds of, uh, you know, diners, drinkers, that, that it, it can be, you know, it can be hard to sell, you know, all kinds of wines to people. I mean, people... I, I, I honestly think that wine does bring out Um, some pretty fucked up qualities in some people. Like they, people, if you go to a table and ask them if they have any questions about the wine list, and they can sometimes they'll even talk to you in a different accent, unironically, <laughs> like that sort of lift. The, you know, they, they'll, 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 they'll pronounce words in a different way. Like, like they, they think they have to speak in poetry in order to, to order something they like. So I, I feel like, you know, in terms of being a sommelier and going to tables. There's always some kind... You're entering a new psychological dimension <laughs> all the time. And with, with, uh, with natural wines, it's just a little bit more dramatic, maybe. Um, but, but when people do like them, they're much more enthused, in a way, I, I, if I can generalize. I feel, you know, it's... it's I think that... The, the, I remember we had the... Um, what was it? The quartz? That, was it the quartz from... I'm, I'm sorry, what was that, Professor? What, what, what's your accent, Tom? The, the, the quartz. Um, yes. And it was, it was uh, yeah, from Courtois. And, and I remember when, I, I think it was, I, I can't remember who, maybe it was Francois, I don't remember, um, saying that it, it changes color. Like, it, it'll change color and it'll turn more amber within, like, 20 minutes. And... That was a way to sell it to people. It wasn't like, oh no, it's fucked up. It was like, yeah, check it out. Like, you know. So I, 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 were you intoxicated at the time? Sorry, what? Were you intoxicated at the time? No, I'm a little goody two, two shoes compared to you. Um, but uh, but yeah, I don't know. So, but but with with Vinegar Hill House, for example, which was late, you know, 2008, um, and this was. 
I, I, for me, there's basically pre-Lee and post-Lee, because once she came to Brooklyn, suddenly I had to fight for things that they were begging me to take before. But uh, the, uh, it was, you know, I think somebody did an article about the list saying that it was the lunatic fringe finds a place at Vinegar Hill House. So, and then I think later on, um, the person that wrote that article talked about how weird it was that there was a time when these wines were considered the lunatic fringe. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, people... Uh, for, uh, one weird experience was with the, the Domaine de Pera wines, which I loved so much that I was like, you know... And, and really have... It, it never ceases to amaze me in my memory of Jenny and Francois bringing these large huge suitcases full of wine all over the... It's really amazing that they did that. You know, and, um, and on that note about Perra, we, uh, I actually was fortunate uh, enough very recently. Natural wine does not age, and we had uh, a bottle of uh, Yacom en Défaut and 947 uh, a few months ago, and the wines are showing uh-huh, like it's uh-huh, absolutely... Incredible. Yeah. I had Incredible. Pierre Jean Coup was very proud of this few bottles that he has. Um, and I had one a couple of years ago that was amazing, like ridiculous. But I remember I, 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 I tasted them all normally, but then, then you were out and there was a new cuvee coming in. And I said, well, well, I'll take it. And it was, there was like, I, I don't know, 10K, 9K, it was as much as you could give me, and it was kind of a lot. And it was completely fucked up. Like, <laughs> like, 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 uh, and so, so, you know, and I got a lot of shit for that. But, but, but basically, I wish I had held on to, uh, yeah. uh, I, I think at the time I opened 360, um, Dresner was sitting on probably about three or four vintages of red from Auvergnois and probably as many in white because no one wanted to buy that stuff. And uh, I would get these regular phone calls from Joe saying, uh, this was just sent back from uh, Kev East in New Jersey. He's like, do you think that you could take the wine? We were talking about punk spirit earlier. And uh, Puzla, the guys who were bottling uh, and, and labeling, using the labeling machine at uh, Claude du Tuboeuf had run out of a particular label. So they decided, I forget if it was a label for a red on a white, but anyway, they, Noel, at the time, who still works for Thierry, uh, and Jérôme had taken a Sharpie and they had crossed over the name to write what it was. And unfortunately, the first case went to this very classic place in Jersey. And a guy called Joe and said, what the fuck is this? You know, Sharpie label. And Joe calls me and he says, uh, look, uh, we have a half a pallet of wines that have been Sharpied by, uh, by Jérôme and Noel. And uh, we think you're probably the only guy that uh, is going to be able to sell this. Thierry also had sent us, um, unbeknownst to us, he had completed a, uh, an order with, uh, with sparkling. He was still making sparkling wines at the time. And some of it, he didn't have enough disgorged, so he had sent us some non-disgorged bottles, but we didn't know. So we opened the first bottle in the dining room, and it explodes everywhere. So it became this show wine where they said, and of course, about if you were good, you kept maybe two-thirds or half of the bottle. So it became this show. He said, oh, you want to drink this wine? Here, let's go outside. <laughs> it's like, well, what do you mean? To-? No, you're going to have to get up, and we're going to go open this bottle outside. And, uh, and I called Joe, and I said, did you know that a lot of these bottles weren't disgorged? And he's like, well, what do you mean? I said, that's exactly what I mean. And it just, that's what, that was Thierry that said, oh, they can handle it. They, they, they got it. They got this. And it's, that's, that's, the way, that's the way it was. I want to thank all of our panelists for this really illuminating conversation and more to come.